Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Fifty years ago was the Summer of Love. We're going to mark that milestone on the Confab with an encore presentation of a couple of conversations we've had about the Beatles. We'll hear from Andy Ferguson about Paul McCartney and Michael Warren about the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. All that coming up on the Confab. The Confab is brought to you by the Dollar Shave Club. They don't mess around with 14-blade razors and magic lubrication strips or other gimmicky shave technology. Confab listeners can get their first month with the Dollar Shave Club for just $5 with free shipping. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. And now we welcome to the Confab studio Mr. Andrew Ferguson, senior editor of the Weekly Standard. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me here. Little known fact, you're also known widely as the fifth Beatle. <laughs> well, I did apply uh, back in the <laughs> 70s, but they weren't hiring because it turned out they'd already broken up. I hate when that happens. Yeah. Well, you've recently written in the Weekly Standard uh, a, a book review about a new book about Paul McCartney. But uh, I love the opening of this piece, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. A, a bit past the midpoint of the last century, roughly from early 1967 to late 1969, a sizable number of human beings believed that Paul McCartney was the coolest man who ever lived. Compared with your average world historical claim, this one was not unreasonable. So were you among those who thought that Paul McCartney was the coolest man who ever lived? Absolutely, absolutely. I was... I was... I was so young that I, that I would have thought such a silly thing anyway, but there were a lot of people older than I was, including the man who wrote the book that you referred to, this new biography of Paul McCartney, uh, a British journalist named Philip Norman, who felt the same way. And it's, it, you know, he was, he's, you know, extremely handsome. He had this incredibly glamorous girlfriend, the prettiest actress in Britain. He drove the coolest car in the world. He had the coolest dog, which is this big, you know, sheep dog. And uh, he had a farm in Scotland and a beautiful house in London. And he was making the most beautiful, popular music that any of us had hoped to hear. And, you know, you put all those things together and it's really a pretty strong case. Yeah. And it seemed to have pissed off Philip Norman. Yes, right. You know, that's the thing. Um, Norman is is very interesting specimen of this because he started off as a guy who, you know, worshipped the Beatles. He was a, a young journalist at the time. Uh, but he said he spent a lot of his youth resenting McCartney for his seeming to have won the lottery of life in every conceivable way. And it, it did. It bred resentment. And um, so he kind of got his own back when he wrote a which still regarded as a definitive biography of the Beatles called Shout and uh really right. cast if anybody McCartney. has read one one thing about the Beatles one book about the Beatles right. it it's be likely sh- that they've read Shout yeah it came out in 1980 a few weeks before Lennon died and it, in it McCartney comes off as this kind of pampered prima donna with 
you know, maybe one-tenth of Lennon's talent and somebody piggybacking on the other Beatles, which is absurd, but that was his thesis. Yeah, and it, it played into this thesis that um, that Paul, the cute Beatle, didn't have anything on John, the smart Beatle. The, the smart Beatle who was, you know, politically aware and would say these edgy, controversial things and, you know, ended up... D- Touring around with avant-garde art, and you know, making what we now know to be ridiculous, arty films with his, who we now know to be ridiculous wife Yoko Ono, and um, it, you know, for some reason that fed into the stereotype of of how the Beatles' power uh, play uh, fell. You know, Lennon, the the edgy artiste, McCartney, the sappy kind of. I don't know, Mama's Boy or something like that. Right, except in reality, John Lennon, great artist though he was, did manage to succumb rather dramatically to the horrors of heroin abuse and other right. things that kept him from showing up and getting to work right, at all. Right. And and whoever was responsible for one lick or one bit of melody or one bit of lyric I think it's pretty clear that there wouldn't have been much of anything produced by the Beatles in the late 60s yes, if it hadn't been for Paul McCartney ringing up the, the, the other lads and saying, hey, guys, show up at the studio. Right, right. We, we have work to do. Yeah, there's a great line in um, the Norman biography of McCartney. Tony Barrow, one of the many hangers on around the Beatles, said Lennon was a right lazy bastard and you know he, he, especially after the Beatles stopped touring you know they had worked incredibly hard and so he bought a house in the suburbs and he sat around and watched tv all the time and McCartney meanwhile was just he's just one of those people who can't stop still I mean even though he probably should sometimes and so he's taken that I mean he took that energy and applied it to the Beatles and really what we know is the Beatles body of work uh, owes itself to McCartney more than anybody else simply because of what you say. He actually kicked him in the butt and made him get to work. And speaking of getting to work, McCartney is still at it. I mean, just from... It's incredible. Y- you have to respect just from sheer musician professionalism standards the fact that here's a guy worth well over a billion dollars who is still out there doing one-nighters. Yeah, yeah. It's... It, one thing that does come through in this Norman biography is he how restless he is in every sense of the word. He's you know he's essentially been touring more or less nonstop now for four or five years. These tours that he does gross more than a hundred million dollars a year. Um, and, and Heather Mills doesn't get all of that. <laughs> no, and she's, <laughs> she's off somewhere else doing awful things probably. But uh, anyway, he's he's. He's thrown forward by this this sense of inadequacy in a way or competitiveness. I think that's probably what it is more than anything else. He, he admits to this. He says, you know, he, he pours over how much the Stones, the Rolling Stones are making from their tours and what their sales are and where Bruce Springsteen stands compared to his – Gross numbers and so on, and and you know if he so hears like it, any like great CEO, there's there's the the money isn't about like having oh, it's money, a, it's about keeping score. It's a metric, yeah. It's just a way of of seeing who's on top, and uh, it's a you know the guy is seventy five years old, as you say, he, you know he's he's got all the money he could ever have. He's got a beautiful wife. He's raised a apparently marvelous family, children and grandchildren who love him. 
but he's still got this thing. I mean, one of the other themes of Norman's book is how much he is propelled nowadays by a desire to set the record straight about who did what in the Beatles. And he wants people to understand that this is how much his contribution was to the Beatles' success, especially in those last three years. And is, is, he trying really, is he trying really hard to make people forget about silly love songs? <laughs> Will we ever forget? Will we ever forgive? That's the question. No, I, I don't know. I think some things just are burned so deeply in the, the public memory that they'll never be eradicated. Why does the man go as Sir Paul McCartney? Don't you think that if you've been a Beatle, which is about as rarefied company as you could possibly get, that being one of however many, you know, um, uh, grubby office holders who have the title Sir in front right, of their right. name, don't, don't you think it would, it's 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 a diminishment in a, in a sense? Absolutely, to be it's sir a demotion. Someone. It's a demotion. You know, there's there's only four people who got to be called Beatles, and um, but you know that's also part of his thing. He is a Small C conservative sort of uh, person. He's a great patriot. He admires the Queen, and he. Um, Do you think he voted leave or remain in Brexit? Well, I think his politics are perfectly, you know, PC ordinary left wing politics. But the, um, but you know, he he's at bottom a, a great patriot, and he loves the royalty and all of the the quirks of Britain. And I think. It may even be that being knighted was more important than having written Hey Jude. I can't believe that that's true, but I think maybe somewhere in his in his heart he believes that being knighted was the tops. Well, the tops is talking to Andy Ferguson Absolutely. on the confab. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Eric. Warren. So have you ever heard that cut before? Uh, once or twice. Yeah, it's uh, this hip new band I hear from, what, Liverpool? Or? This happening band, Sergeant, <laughs> Sergeant Peppers, something? Yeah, it was uh, 50 years ago. This was, by all accounts, the, the most extraordinary rock album to have appeared at any time. Yeah, that's what everybody seems to think. Uh, there's a new book out, uh, which I include in a piece I've got going up at theweeklystandard.com uh, called Sergeant Pepper at 50, because, uh, of course, it came out 50 years ago. Uh, Sergeant Pepper at 50, and the subtitle refers to it as uh, the Beatles' masterpiece. And I think that is sort of the universal uh, view of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, that this album that comes out in 1967, 10 months after the previous uh, Beatles album, which is the longest stretch uh, up to that point between and albums. And yet, by the way, in modern terms, that's that's a, a, a bare, you know, blink of the eye. Like, totally. In terms of when you think of everything that went into it and production without computer aids. That's right. That's right. And it's 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 interesting too because the the demand for Beatles 
records. Uh, something new from the Beatles was so great that uh, uh, the the uh, single that comes out, I think, in January 1967, "Strawberry Fields Forever" and "Penny Lane," uh, was basically released and sort of rushed into production quickly, um, so that uh, so that the fans would have something because they're wondering where the Beatles they're not doing live shows anymore um, they are supposedly going to start working on this album uh, in fact those two songs were left off the album uh, which I think they were always sort of intended really sort of cosmically supposed to be on they ended Sgt. up Pepper. getting tossed into that that cosmic jumble the magical mystery tour that's right it. actually yeah the uh, the which was an EP in the UK actually but uh, the, uh, the 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 view at the time which George Martin the producer always regretted was that uh, uh, is that you didn't want to uh, essentially make people buy the same songs twice. So if they had already bought them on 45s, they didn't need to be on the on the LP. But of course, artistically, that was not uh, really what should have happened. But anyway, so yeah, so it it uh, it it took the album took uh, the summer of love by storm. I guess it kind of kicked off the summer of love uh, in 1967 and uh, was just dominant and was this this. 23 weeks at yeah. number one in Britain. It's uh, pretty amazing. Um, and, and at a time, again, to emphasize, this was a time when the Beatles were thought to have been done. They had gone off the road. They were no longer doing tours there were a lot in the UK of, or anywhere every else. Every interview started with, you know, are are you guys breaking up? Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so for them to sort of unleash this album that uh, had music that was unlike anything that most people had heard um, was really extraordinary. But I would say, and I would argue, and I do argue that... Um, Are you being argumentative? I'm being argumentative. I'm being contrarian here. Uh, this is, as our colleague Andy Ferguson likes to say, is the maybe the sophisticated take. Uh, I'm not particularly sophisticated, but this is the sophisticated argument that uh, Sgt. Pepper's not all it's cracked up to be. It's actually got some flaws. And uh, and I would say that the uh, the album that is better than Sgt. Pepper and that does what Sgt. Pepper does, I think, better is the one that precedes it that 10 months before uh, in that came out, I guess, what, August of 1966, which was Revolver. But we'll get to. Revolver. Yeah, we'll get to Revolver in a bit. But one of the things you point out and has been pointed out before uh, about um, Sgt. Pepper's is it's a concept album that. The concept seems to stop after the first song. Right. So, uh, right, this idea that Paul McCartney came up with. And at this point, Paul McCartney's basically leading the group. Uh, John Lennon's kind of checked out a little bit. George Harrison's doing his own things. Ringo's just trying to find a, a band to play with or, you know, wants, wants to be in a band to play with. Ringo uh, just wants to play some rock and roll Exactly, drums. exactly. Paul's kind of taking the lead and he's thinking, um, I think, actually kind of brilliantly, um, we are now not a touring band. People are wondering what kind of band we are. What better time, uh, what what better device uh, uh, to sort of explore the studio with than behind these alter egos? So he comes up with this idea of Sgt. Pepper and this brass band, which is sort of a thing in the, uh, used to be a thing in, in the UK, these brass bands that still would go is. around. I still guess it is. still is. Yeah. Um, and so they would sort of be members of that and, and, and they would be playing music that was different than what people would expect from the Beatles, but they could always say, look, we're, we're playing characters here. And, and that was the idea, except as, as, as you mentioned, there's the first song, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And then, they sort of do an introduction, a sort of uh, uh, tack it on at the end uh, for 
another singer, Billy Shears, who's Ringo Starr, to sing the second song with a little help from my friends. And then that's kind of it. None of the other songs have anything to do with this brass band or this these alter egos. It's just kind of a mishmash. Right. And the songs make no sense together, many of them. And it's not that they don't hang together as Beatles songs. It's they don't hang together as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band songs. I mean, right. the opening cut, that's a great bit of groovy rock and roll. Right. And then, you know, I'm, I particularly think that this stretch of Within You, Without You, which is the first tune on, on the, the side, flip second side, side right. the second side, which is this sort of interminable um, Indian raga kind of thing. It just goes on and on, which right. is George George's contribution, followed by one of Paul's worst Paul things, <laughs> which is When I'm 64. A little music hall ditty. A little music hall. You just put those two things together. It's a concept album in which you have things that make no sense jammed up one right after the other and you know you think of think of a concept album concept albums had been done before right and will be done and will be done better in the ensuing years too right and but you know in in the world of jazz you had had things like miles davis sketches of spain where Mm -hmm. you had a kind of unified concept of what the sound was with gil evans arrangements and the approach taking music that was famous music from Spanish composers and translating it into a jazz idiom, it all holds together as a album rather than being here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. It's a variety show approach. Right, right, and 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 I think that is uh, sort of reflects where the Beatles were at that point, which is um, they they did lose a, a, a something when they stopped being a live band. Now. Anybody who who seems particularly the late era live band Beatles uh, shows knows they were terrible. They were out of tune. They were they they were playing sort of the same old songs they've been playing since you know Hamburg, and uh, it was it was really kind of a mess. But thirty minutes, right? They're very short too. Imagine going to like one of these big stadiums and just going to see the Beatles, and then they played for half an hour, and then that was it, and you went home. Um, screaming fans, you know, nobody they couldn't even hear themselves. They didn't have good monitors and that sort of thing back then. and um, But they sort of lost something, sort of the idea of a, of, of a band and sort of a collaboration between the four um, that I think was – they lost a little bit of that uh, in Sgt. Pepper. If we can break away for just a moment, this is the shameless commerce part of the podcast where we talk about the Dollar Shave Club. Get a great shave at a great price with razors delivered right to your door. The Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. They don't mess around with 14-blade razors and magic lubrication strips or other silly shave technology. There's a special deal for Daily Standard listeners who join the Dollar Shave Club. You get $15 worth of blades and shave butter for just $5 with free shipping. It's easy to order online. All you have to do to get this exclusive offer is go to dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. Now, we're talking the Shave Club, but this was the album where the guys showed up with mustaches. Right. They weren't shaving off the mustaches. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a – there was another part of this uh, – album right was sort of an image makeover uh for the beatles they were no longer the sort of ties and suits and mop top uh they were they were kind of psychedelic um i'm probably not 
breaking any new ground by saying they were under the influence of a lot of uh, controlled substances. Uh, and uh, it was just a different, but it was also a different time uh, in the, in the country. It was kind of a, a, this transition time. And there was the, the whole idea of a counterculture, of uh, these sort of art, artistic people who were, um, I, I should say in, in the country, really all over the world, particularly in, in London and, and then later in the United States, um, there the, are all these sort of art artists and drug pushers and weird kind of groups of people who were all influencing each other. And, and so Sergeant Pepper kind of comes out of that period. But I find that it kind of sounds like it's from that period. And, and one of the great things about the Beatles is they're so timeless. And this is one of the, one of the records I think that they put out that, that kind of strains that, that characteristic of their music. Now, if if Sergeant Pepper isn't the great masterpiece as you've suggested, the right. high watermark may well be Revolver. Everything people say about Sergeant Pepper—that's what Revolver is to me. It's it is a mishmash of different genres, um, an interesting uh, different sounds. I mean, you do again. You have an Indian sound, uh, song from George in "Love You Too." You have a, a heavy strings accompaniment of Paul singing uh, with Eleanor Rigby. Um, you have. Uh, Except compare the strings on Eleanor Rigby, which are really vigorous strings, with the main string song on Sgt. Pepper's She's Leaving Home, which um, was not the – those were not done by uh, George Martin. Right. George Martin did Eleanor Rigby, the the arrangement. Right. But um, he didn't do the She's Leaving Home, which is really sappy. Oh, it's I think I think it's terrible actually. It, it's sort of and and George Martin, he was apparently sick the day that uh, that Paul really wanted to get the strings arranged. So he calls up Paul calls up his friend Mike Leander, who's uh, another sort of younger, less experienced uh, arranger who go on to have a, a great career. Um, and he includes this harp at the beginning of "She's Leaving Home," and the the strings are are very kind of sappy and um, uh, and I think George Martin. Uh, later said, uh, sort of a backhanded compliment. There's a little too bit, too, too much lush, lushness uh, <laughs> to the strings. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was. If Sergeant Pepper is all about, is a, if the struggle with Sergeant Pepper, the problem I have with the album is, is a little too much excess and a little too much indulgence. Um, Revolver doesn't do any of that. They're they're still trying to figure out what's going on in the studio. The idea of looping tapes to get uh, sort of multiple sounds. Running uh, things backwards. Running things backwards, splicing things together. All these cool analog things that they were doing and experimenting with. They hadn't quite, they didn't quite have the freedom that they did with Sgt. Pepper. And so that constrained them a little bit and made, I think, a tighter album. And then you add to the fact that it's very much, much more so than Sgt. Pepper, a collaboration. You you read about the uh, the different songs and how they were put together, and really everybody's kind of involved in figuring out, you know, even on Eleanor Rigby, which is just Paul and an o- a string octet, uh, Paul singing with a string octet. Uh, you know, George, the the, the, the famous chorus, uh, uh, I'll look at all the lonely people. That's a George Harrison contribution. Uh, <laughs> I like Ringo Starr contributed the line that Father McKenzie was darning his socks in the night. You know, I mean, there's just sort of there's a there's a, a group collaboration. I think that strengthens the album, makes it more of an artistic uh, a, a, a piece of art, pop art, but a piece of art. And it has something of sophistication and visionary quality beyond even anything that happened on Sgt. Pepper's, and that's the, the closing cut on yes. Revolver. A, another Ringoism, as you've pointed out yeah. to me, 
uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, <laughs> which I think is the single high point of the Beatles. That, I, I totally agree. It's this, uh, it, it's this sort of uh, controlled cacophony of noises and uh, a fantastic driving drum beat by Ringo and and a completely original drum beat. Too. Totally, yes. Uh, and 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 sort of John Lennon, I think at his best, the sort of avant-garde John Lennon at his best. You know, he's not just throwing in random sounds and screams by Yoko Ono as he would do later. This is sort of. Um, you know, playing around with songs and trying to build, what he was ultimately trying to do, what the Beatles were obsessed with, was making a mono-chord, single-chord song. Uh, and they almost did it with uh, with Tomorrow Never Knows. They were trying to get sort of one song that kind of had a almost Indian-style driving chord throughout the entire song. And it's it's... I think it's it it is it's it's more experimental than anything on Sgt. Pepper and it's it's to me it's better than anything on Sgt. Pepper. I know that's you know sacrilege to say but uh, I think it's true. All right, well let's uh send things off with a little <laughs> taste of Tomorrow Never Knows. Michael Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.